That was wonderful, wasn't it? Marvelous. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Mark, and all of the team. I learned a little chorus years ago. His strength is perfect when our strength is gone. He'll carry us when we can't carry on. So I'm dependent on him this morning because I don't have much strength. But he has all the strength we need. So as I prepared to come up here, I said, God, it's up to you. Because I know there are folks that need your word and need to hear the truth that we celebrate this resurrection day. So I want you to hear from the Holy Spirit today. Jesus of Nazareth, according to accounts by his closest associates, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. For the Lord was with him. That was his reputation. Mighty in word and deed. He was a preacher and a healer. And at first, it does not seem likely that he would be a candidate for execution. But that was before the envy and anger of the religious leaders was aroused by his compelling words and amazing deeds. When it became evident that Jesus could not be assimilated into the existing religious institutions, those who guarded the institutions rightly judged him to be a threat both to them personally and to the religion which they espoused. These men, including the high priest, the highest official of their religion, orchestrated the arrest of Jesus and supplied the witnesses that led to his conviction on charges of insurrection. I have stood upon an ancient stone pavement, now 10 or 12 feet below the streets of old Jerusalem. Some guess this pavement to be the very place where Jesus was tried by Pilate, the Roman governor where that interchange between him and the governor took place, where his conviction was announced, and where he was flogged. His flogging is the picture that stayed in my mind, and I cannot get it out since being in old Jerusalem. The picture of Christ at the column tied up while he was whipped. Some of you saw The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film. The whipping post is an unimaginable horror. So severe sometimes 
the victim died before he was able to be crucified. Jesus was whipped at the column. Roman justice was graphic and brutal. They developed crucifixion to a fine art, accompanied by beating and public humiliation. The criminal was suspended from a cross in a public place somewhere along the most traveled routes. Roman crucifixion was common enough, in fact, that they left the vertical beams planted in the ground outside the city gates. So the victim carried the cross beam on the way from the place of his conviction and whipping to the stake outside the gates. The Romans were proud of their justice. They would suspend a sign on the cross or hang it around the victim's neck, describing the crime of the one being executed so any passerby could look up and see, oh, this one committed murder, or this one was a rapist or a thief. In the case of Jesus, they nailed a cross uh, to the cross a sign which said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The Romans were saying, this is what happens to people who claim to be a king. There is no king but Caesar. By this form of torture, the Romans discouraged uprisings against their rule and terrorized the conquered peoples. So from a political standpoint, the death of Jesus was useful. They used him to make a point. Never even think about resisting Rome. Jesus did not live very long once he was hung up to die. John tells us that the soldiers were going to break his legs to hasten his death. They did this with the other two victims crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, he had already died without a single broken bone. Just like the Passover lambs being slaughtered at that very time. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea removed the body of Jesus from the cross. I thought about how that must have been. to take that body down. The Jews asked for it, and the Romans made a concession in this place because the Jews did not want a criminal hanging on a cross on their Sabbath and their high feast day. So Pilate gave permission for Joseph to take him. With the help of some women, they hastily prepared the body for burial 
and placed it in Joseph's new tomb. They planned all along, I think, to wait over the Sabbath day and then come back early on the morning of the first day. Listen to this reading by Christy Gibson, John 20, 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Thank you. It's a surprise. It's a surprise, Mary Magdalene, dominating the story that John tells of the resurrection. She appears at the end of the Gospels to take this prominent place. She is hardly mentioned prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. She is risen in prominence in our own day through the fanciful thriller written by Dan Brown made into a blockbuster movie, The Da Vinci Code, in which the novel suggests that Mary Magdalene is the wife of Jesus, a modern myth based on a few statements from the apocryphal Gospel of Philip 
written two or three hundred years after Jesus died. Mary Magdalene is first mentioned by John when he names her among the women at the cross of Jesus in chapter 19. Only here at the cross and in the garden does she appear in John's narrative. The same is true for Matthew and Mark's accounting of Mary Magdalene. She came from Galilee with the women to care for the needs of Jesus. That's what Matthew tells us in Matthew 27. Luke is the only one who mentions Mary Magdalene prior to the crucifixion. He includes her in a list of women who accompanied Jesus in some of his travels and helped to support him in his ministry. Luke records that these were women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Luke tells us. Mark uses the same language in his resurrection account to say that Mary Magdalene was the one out of whom seven demons came. Well, Jesus cast out demons many times in his ministry. And that is more like sickness than it is like scandalous sin. So I don't know that the long church tradition is right that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. My guess is that it is not. And that the lady who anointed his feet, the sinful woman that anointed his feet in, in, uh, in the home of the Pharisee is not actually Mary Magdalene, but I don't know. But it is curious that here at the end of his life, Mary Magdalene appears on the scene. John chooses to picture her alone in his narrative. I don't know if this narrative corresponds to the one that is included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where there are women who come to the tomb. But I know that when you read John's account, it focuses on Mary Magdalene, out of whom were cast seven devils. And I think she is alone in part because he wants us to deal with her. To walk with her through this experience of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that Mary Magdalene is the only one whom the record says was both at the death of Jesus, at the burial of Jesus, and at the empty tomb. There may have been others, but not another person is mentioned at all three places. She is alone in grief when we find her. She stood at the foot of the cross of the teacher that she loved. Unlike the disciples who ran away, she remained there to hear his last words, to comfort his grieving mother, to see his last breath. That was Mary. No matter how many people are around you, when somebody you love dies, it's very personal to you. You come to the casket 
with a storm of emotions that you could no more explain to someone else than you understand even yourself. You go to the grave, walking through the cemetery, and all these thoughts are in your mind, and you do not share them with anybody. Somebody said, we all die alone. In a certain way, it is true. We come into this world one by one, and we leave this world one by one. It is appointed unto man once to die. And because we are alone in our death, there is also a way in which we are alone in our grief. No human really knows all the connections, the web of relationships that Mary had with Jesus or that you have with the one you love. Mary is mentioned with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea at the tomb. And I see her helping them with the body of Jesus as he is taken off the cross, trailing after them as they bear the master to the garden. Mary is following along, Mary Magdalene, and she is there when he is placed in that new tomb. She looks at that slab of rock where they lay her Lord. She is a witness to his burial. She marks the place in her mind where the Lord is laid. She did what she could. She reminds me of another Mary who only five days earlier took a vial of expensive perfume and poured it on the feet of Jesus. And when the disciples protested and said, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor, Jesus said, I tell you, she has anointed me for my burial. And everywhere the gospel is proclaimed around the world, this act will be remembered. Both of these Marys did what they could for the man they loved. Mary Magdalene, along with all those who loved Jesus of Nazareth, endured a long, dark Sabbath. The feasting had no appeal for them. Life as they knew it was over with the death of Jesus and all their hopes were shattered. Luke tells us a little bit about what they did. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And then we find Mary alone in the garden. She rests on that Sabbath, and early in the morning, while it is still dark, she comes to the garden. The songwriter said, I come to the garden alone while the dew 
is still on the roses. I don't know if he was thinking about this, but, but that's what strikes me. Mary coming to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. The sun is barely glowing behind a mount of olives. She's ready to finish the work of burial that they were forced to abandon in haste with the arrival of the Sabbath day. I have stood in two or three gardens in the old city of Jerusalem. The one I like most is the one next to Gordon's Calvary. I suppose it's everybody's favorite. It is a peaceful, quiet place where you can imagine the gardener arriving early to water the plants and tend the roses. Mary arrives first and discovers the large boulder that sealed the tomb has been removed and rolled aside. She sees the body is gone and she runs to report to Peter and John and the other disciples what she has found. Peter and John respond with a foot race to the garden. I don't know everything that's going on in John's account of this foot race, but it is very important to John that we remember, know that he got there first. They sound like a couple boys to me. Three times in his account, he notes that I made it first and Peter was behind me. They ran to that garden tomb to see what had happened there. Peter passes John by. John stops at the door of the grave. He doesn't go in, but Peter dashes on up, runs into the grave. He sees the incredible sight, the burial linen laid there like an empty cocoon. The face napkin folded up and laid in a place by itself. Someone told me, I don't know it to be true, but they said that if the master, when he leaves the table, was intending to come back to finish his meal, he would fold the napkin as a sign to the one who waited on him, that he was returning. Well, the napkin was folded up in a place by itself, the one they had placed over the face of Jesus. John then entered that tomb and he records that he saw and believed. Even though they did not understand at this time from Scripture, they hadn't pulled out of the Old Testament text yet that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead. Still, he believed that Jesus had rose from the dead. I think that's what he means when he says that. Though yet they still did not understand it from Scripture. But he... Perhaps of the three, Peter, Mary, and John, he alone saw and believed. Because Mary still does not understand that Jesus has risen from the, from the grave. And Peter and John leave her in the garden. And she is alone again. And this is how John casts this part of the picture. The disciples sprint back to the upper room or wherever they are congregated. They make their report. Mary Magdalene remains in the garden. She is crying. To bury the one you love 
is the most emotional event in your life. To find that body gone without explanation and the grave disturbed compounds the grief and sorrow. Right out here in our lobby, one Sunday morning, I came upon a young man so agitated he could barely speak. When he finally was able to tell me what was troubling him, it was this. He had gone to his mother's grave right here in Greenwood Cemetery, and it had been open without him knowing about it. It was disturbed. And that young man was troubled until we found that a grave that that a burial had taken place in his mother's tomb, and he did not know about it. Well, Mary got to the grave, and it was opened, and the body was gone. Mary checked the grave again. John tells us that. She is outside the grave crying. She bows down to check again, and this time she sees two angels, all aglow, seated at the head and foot of that stone shelf, where they had placed the body of Jesus. They ask her, Woman, why are you crying? I don't think this is a rebuke. I think the angels may actually be puzzled. Why are you crying, woman? They don't get it. Mary still assumes there is a simple, ordinary explanation for the absence of the body. They, whoever they might be, have taken my Lord away, she told the two angels, and I don't know where they have put him. You see how personal this is to Mary Magdalene. They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. And then all of a sudden, she who was alone again in the garden is alone this time. With Jesus, Mary turned around and saw a man she thought was the gardener. She says, and he says to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Mary responds in a way consistent with her understanding from her first arrival before sunrise. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. She still thinks his body has been taken from the tomb and Jesus is dead. Jesus said to her, Mary, that's all she needed. Her name falling from him, his lips parted the veil. She now knows that this is Jesus to whom she speaks. She cries out, teacher, and gives him an embrace. That's how I understand it. And Jesus pries her loose and sends her to the disciples and says, tell them, that he is returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus is letting her know and the disciples know that he's going away. He does not want them to think that he will be hanging around permanently for them to see and touch. But he will be going to a familiar place 
his father's house and their father's house. He has taught them all about the father in his years of ministry. This is distinctive to Jesus. You need to lodge it in your mind. While God is called father before Jesus, the teacher comes. Jesus is the one who really helps us understand God as father. And the most compelling parable that Jesus told is the story of the prodigal son in which God is cast as the father who longs for his son's return. The father's house. He has told them about that. I go to prepare a place for you, he said. In my father's house are many rooms. They know the father loves them. They know they are destined to live in the father's house. They will one day eat at the father's table in the big banquet hall. The father will receive them just as he is about to receive Jesus, his one and only. The father loves him. He, He will not desert them. They know this about the father from the teaching of Jesus. And so Mary now goes to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. This is Mary Magdalene's report to the disciples. Seeing the empty tomb is startling, confusing, and amazing. Seeing angels is fearful and astonishing. But seeing Jesus is the best news possible in the universe. She saw him one-on-one. She had a conversation with him. She was alone in the garden and she met with Jesus. I have seen the Lord. Soon it would be Peter who would say, I have seen the Lord. And then John and the other disciples, Thomas missed the first group meeting with the resurrected Lord and refused to believe when he was told that they had seen the Lord. Like so many of us, he had to see for himself. And when Jesus invited him to put his finger in his wounds and be not faithless but believing, even doubting Thomas, abandon his skepticism and embrace Jesus as my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed, so blessed are all of you who have not seen in the way that Mary Magdalene or Peter or John saw. And yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The two people on the road to Emmaus walked and talked with Jesus and did not realize it was him until he broke the bread. I think that's when they saw his wounded hands. They returned to Jerusalem and told the disciples, It is true, the Lord is risen. Saul of Tarsus would see the risen Christ on the Damascus road and believe. In the first letter to the church of Corinth, he wrote that Jesus was seen by over 500 people at one time. These testimonies of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, together with the evidence of the empty tomb and the coming of the Holy Spirit, gave birth to the church of Jesus Christ. What are we doing here today? What in the world are we doing here today? Why is there a church on this planet? Why in the world? 
There's only one explanation. The disciples, these despairing, confused, and frightened men who abandoned Jesus in his flogging and execution, saw him alive after he was buried. And in their scene of the Lord Jesus, they knew that he had raised from the dead and everything about the universe was different. Nothing could ever be the same again. Jesus is risen from the tomb. You can understand how profoundly that changes all the rules. How it challenges every notion. One time in human history, a man came out of the grave never to die again. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He was seen by Mary, by John, by Peter, by the disciples, by 500 brethren at once, by James, by the two on the road to Emmaus. They recorded their encounters with the risen Christ. The church was birthed in those days after the execution of Jesus because Jesus was alive taught his disciples for 40 days after the resurrection, talking to them about the kingdom of God, preparing them for what they were going to do in the world. The church is here because Jesus is alive. Every person stands before God alone. Like Mary Magdalene in the garden, before the empty tomb, encountering the risen Christ, every individual in this room has your one-on-one. We are each responsible for our own answer given to God. No one can give the answer for us, not parent or priest. We are alone in our death despite the company of loved ones or medical professionals. Each one of us dies singly just as we came into the world. We know one day it will be our turn. The apostle writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost if Christ is not raised. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own term, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We come to the garden alone. 
with our own questions and presuppositions. We stand before the empty tomb in mind and heart. Here we make our decision. We make the call. Do we believe God raised Jesus from the dead? Let's bow together. As with every person who has stood before the tomb and considered these things, the decision you make in your own heart changes life dramatically. If you decide Jesus did not rise from the dead and there is no resurrection, then we have no life. We are still in our sins. All our loved ones who have died in Christ are lost. Those are the consequences of believing such a way. That's its outcome. But if we stand before the tomb and say, I believe God invaded history one time in a man named Jesus of Nazareth, that he lived a perfect life and died upon a cross, died for my sin and the sin of the world. He was buried in a tomb and three days later he rose from the dead, never to die again. I believe that's the central event of human history and God's greatest revelation about who he is and what he's up to in my life. To embrace this truth is to change your life forever. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, what a great moment to do so. Lord, we pray that you will stir up the faith in us to believe that what Mary Magdalene experienced and saw is true. Jesus is indeed alive. To stand upon the shoulders of these witnesses, to receive into our heart the Lord and Savior, to receive forgiveness of sin, and a new home in heaven. Lord, thank you for sending your one and only Son to die for us on the cross. Lord, we pray that you will help us give our answer, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.